So I have a question this morning that I would like to begin with. How many American Idol fans do we have here? Come on now, be honest. <clears throat> okay, we have a few. How many of you have ever seen American Idol ever? Okay. I want to just show you a, a brief little clip here that comes out of our, cult, uh, out of our culture. And uh, it's about 20 seconds long. And then there's something I'd like to say about it. <clears throat> the winner of American Idol season 13 <laughs> is Caleb Johnson! Okay, there it is. <clears throat> you know, I have heard of the show American Idol, and I have, I have watched it. It's, a, it's really a musical talent show. And by the way, I, I have no problem with, with musical talent shows. <clears throat> but what struck me as I did this series was the title. And you've heard the phrase, how many of you would like to be the next American Idol? And you know, we hear that phrase and we don't really realize what we're saying, do we? How many here would like to be, the question is asked on the show, who is going to be, who would like to be the next American Idol? Do we really want to be an American Idol? And I think that word idol, we have dismissed it to other countries in other places, like Nepal. I asked my daughter for a little description of idolatry in Nepal. Now, I'm going to read, uh, when she got to the end of this, she said, uh, she said, there's a lot more I could say, but this is just my first response. She gave me two full typed pages. Um, <clears throat> And she's probably not exaggerating. So I'm going to take a little time. I'm going to take about five minutes. And I'd like you to just hear what idolatry is like in the country of Nepal. Idolatry is even more literal here than you would imagine it to be. It is the center of this city. You would hardly be able to stand in the street without seeing visual representation of idolatry. Most houses have a shrine to house their idols. The one in my house is right outside my door, partially hidden by a curtain. It is something like a dollhouse on a marble slab. The lady of the house comes every morning and evening to say prayers to the idols, and she always rings her bell long and loud so they will hear her prayers. They are made of metal, gold, and bronze stone, and they wear glittery clothes. In fact, their clothes are changed, washed, and hung on the line to dry. They even have a small bed, as if idols would come to life at night. There are always fresh flowers strewn around the idol house, and at night incense is lit and food is brought on bronze platters. I don't know all that happens in this shrine, but the lady of the house is devout and never fails to say her daily prayers in a monotone chant. As I walk down the stairs, there are small bowls of water with fresh flowers in them. I suppose they are to ward off evil spirits. And when I come out my door, there's another shrine to a robed stone idol next to our gate. He always has on a clean red and gold cape. 
The faces of idols are carved in the walls, on the doors, even on the sidewalks, and there are outdoor shrines everywhere. More shrines on street corners than Starbucks in Seattle. One of the most intriguing is the toothache shrine, where people come to nail a coin to the shrine to get rid of their toothache. You can't even see what it used to look like. It's completely covered with coins and nails. Everywhere you see people with evidence of their idol worship. Married women will put a red streak in their hair. Anyone coming from idol worship will have the tika, which is a, a, a streak uh, on their forehead, a thumbprint of red powder pressed on their forehead. Taxi drivers touch their, their head as they pass temples, and babies wear heavy eyeliner to ward off evil spirits who come to kidnap them. There are animal sacrifices which still occur. In an upcoming festival, they will sacrifice 182 goats and oxen and spread their blood on the ground. There is the worshipped young girl goddess who lives her whole childhood in a temple and her feet are never allowed to touch the ground. A new young girl, five or six years old, will be selected when the current one reaches puberty. And then there are all the sellers in the temples selling tikka powders, rice, sugar balls, marigolds, and a whole host of other things to offer to idols in the temple. It is a chaotic mix of sellers, holy men, meditating or wandering, parents bringing their children to be blessed, people of all types coming to bring offerings of whatever way they've been taught, like a fair of sorts, only dark instead of fun. Just like I'd imagine it was when Jesus walked into the temple and saw all the sellers of doves and goats now I understand why he was angry. Or just like ancient Israel in their pagan worship. Some say there are as many as 30 million Hindu gods. I found myself on accident a couple of months ago at the opening ceremony of a six-week-long festival dedicated to bringing rain. A wooden structure called the God Chariot had been built by hand with ancient wood. It stood about 60 feet tall. Everyone was waiting for something to happen, and the main road had been roped off. After an hour of waiting, the whole crowd of several hundred people began cheering, and a decorated tent on a platform, the kind kings and queens are carried on in the movies, was being carried on the shoulders of a group of men with a parade of musicians following. The crowd was roaring, cameras were flashing and going off like we were at a concert. And I thought, who on earth is this that would be this important? Some kind of religious celebrity? equal to the Pope probably. After the parade reached the God chariot, they reached inside the tent to pull out whatever was inside. I thought, my goodness, it must be Kamari, the child worshipped as a goddess. But no, after all this, it was an idol less than two feet tall, made of gold and dressed up in doll clothes. The man lifted the idol before placing it in the God chariot. And the crowd went wild with cheers and flashes. That's idolatry here. The pomp and display of fancy offerings centering life around bending over backwards to appease a handmade metal figurine. Some would say it the beauty of the culture. I look at it and see enslavement to something that will never answer you, never care for you, and never satisfy your life. With that said, the day after the ceremony, it rained for a week straight. It poured. It had not rained for a long time. And I looked at the rain every day and wondered why God would allow these people to be so deceived. But there are times 
in this country when evil spirits are consulted and answered. People consult evil spirits and the spirit tells them to sacrifice an ox or something. The people make the sacrifice and the child is healed or the rain comes. This whole idolatry thing is not just silliness. There is a real spiritual force here that acts and responds. And so I say they're bowing down to metal, but there is a spirit here, not just, not God's spirit. That is certainly a lot to think about. Idolatry in Nepal. Aren't we thankful that we don't live in a culture where everywhere we turn, we see adultery, we see idolatry? I want you to just think about this next little clip. I was in Vishakapatnam, East India, a few years ago. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm walking down this dirt lane and there's a, uh, an altar there and there's a shrine that is built and there's chicken blood and feathers everywhere. There's idols as far as the eye can see. They worship everything that you could possibly imagine. I asked one of the pastor's wives who was planning a church in this rural village. I said to her, do you think you will ever come to the United States and visit my country? She said, I did once and I will never come again. I said, why? She said, I cannot stomach the idolatry. As I'm standing next to the altar where chickens get whacked for apparently the chicken god, thinking to myself, this is not what I was expecting to hear. I said, well, where are the shrines of false worship and idolatry in our culture? She said, your God is your stomach and you have restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television and all of the chairs in your home are lined up so that your family can gather around the altar and worship that God. And it dawned on me that idolatry is what we often see in someone else's culture. In our culture, we just think it's the Bass Pro Shop, the Steakhouse. We just think it's the place for you to go to get recreational sporting goods, movie theater. We just see it as entertainment. We see it as hobby. We see it as sport. We don't see it as religion. We don't see it as spirituality. We don't see it as idolatry. So what do you think? Am I saying it's wrong to eat at Burger King? Or to go to Lambeau Field and see the Packers play? Or go out of your way on the way back on your vacation to make sure you hit the local Cabela's that just went up? Am, am I saying that, and it seems like if we're saying that, we're saying that almost anything could become an idol. What does it mean for something to become an idol? What does that mean? Well, I'd like to turn to one of the most basic texts in the Bible. We're going to look at two or three of them this morning. We're going to seek to answer that question. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. It'll be up on the wall, but you might want to just open it up. Second book in the Bible, 
Moses has been given what we call the Ten Commandments by God. And this is what we find in the first six verses of that text. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Those two verses really go together. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you should not make any graven images, any idols. They really all fit into one. And, and, and if you combine those two together, that's about a third of the material in the Ten Commandments. This is like the first thing God says. The first thing God warns us about is idolatry. Worshiping, which means giving worth to something more than giving worth to God. 76% of Americans polled believe that they keep the first, those first two commandments. That they put no other gods before Him. There is a definition of idolatry. And uh, I'd like to just put that up. And I'm just going to have you read through that uh, this morning. This is a definition by Tim Keller. I want you to read through that. I'm not, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> read it out loud here. <clears throat> Okay, the next slide, Rob. Okay, here's what Tim Keller is saying. Say anytime something gets to a place in our lives where we begin to find our value and we begin to find our identity and it, it begins to be that thing that comforts us and that we look forward to in every week, the thing that stands above all else, whatever that is, 
whatever that is, that then becomes an idol in our lives. And so, is the statement, well, it sounds like just about anything could become an idol, is that true? I believe that's true. I think anything in our lives, anything that has more of our affection then God can become an idol. Now in Exodus, in the fifth verse there, there's an interesting word, and it talks about why you shouldn't do this. Why we should not have any other gods. Why we should not do this. Why God will bring such severe punishment. And what's interesting is that God describes Himself in one word, and it's not the word you would guess would be that God would say, this is because I am a just God. Because this is what I have commanded, and to break this command will require my justice. But that's not the word he uses. I think it's very interesting. And here's the word that God uses to describe himself. That God is jealous. I want you to think about that word. That you have a jealous God. That God is, is jealous for you. I remember hearing Oprah Winfrey's testimony and she was sharing why she left her Baptist roots that she grew up in, gospel-centered. She rejected it and she said, and I believe this is the deceiving power of the enemy, but she said one day the pastor got up and he said, God is a jealous God. She said, I decided I couldn't, I, I couldn't accept a God that was jealous. Now we interpret that in, you know, through our minds in terms of jealousy as being a bad thing. But in terms of God who is holy and perfect and just, His jealousy is perfect. And what this is saying is that God is jealous for you, for your affection. Now if you were married to someone or you were dating somebody, and let's say you went out to eat with somebody, and they got up and went and sat down at a table with somebody else, Let's say you're a guy, and, and your girlfriend gets up, or, or your spouse gets up and goes sits with another guy, and, and at the end of the evening, she came back and you said, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. If you want to flirt with some other guy, or you want to pursue some other guy, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. What would you think of that? You'd either think it was a lie, or you'd think they didn't care. And a God that has told us has such extreme love for His people also is extremely jealous for His people. In other words, what this is saying is God desires you. And if you want to reject Him because He desires you with that kind of intensity, then so be it. But I, I think that's just deception from the enemy. We serve a God who is jealous for us. That is the number one reason here in this text. That is the reason God gives as to why it is so important that we seek Him first. That our affection be for Him. And, and anything can get in the way. Colossians 3.5. Look what this verse says. <clears throat> Colossians 3.5. It says, put to death, that's pretty severe, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And it just lists a few here. But anything that belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and notice what it says, which is idolatry. So whatever takes the forefront 
out of your earthly nature, which can be a lot of things, whatever takes the forefront can become an idol. And the unregenerated heart in, in mankind is an idol-producing factory. An idol is anything you seek after to give you what God wants to give you and what only God can give you. I want you to look at me at, at the book of Jeremiah. And this is the other passage I wanted to <clears throat> look at this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. I'm going to spend our, our last few minutes here just looking at this passage with you. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. This is what it says. My people have committed two sins. Two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. So there's two sins here. Number one, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken me. This is the first step. Now, within every one of us in this room, there is something that God created within us that desires to be wowed. That desires to be thrilled. That desires to be awed. Every one of us has that. There's just something inside of us that... that that desires to be awed and to be wowed and to be thrilled. That desires extreme pleasure. God created us with the capacity to enjoy great pleasure. And, and, and what happens is, is that when man forsakes, when man forsakes finding his wow and his thrill and his awe in God, then idolatry sets in. And what is so scary and what is so challenging about our culture in America is that we have the opportunity to be wowed in this land of opportunity, in this land of incredible technology. You have the option to take that thing that God put in you to be wowed and instead of being wowed by God, to be wowed by something else. Wow, did you see that new video game that came out? Wow, did you see that movie in the theater? I mean, the, the effects were incredible. And there's something in this that responds. Wow, did you see that game? That was just, that was the most awesome game. And we, we start talking like this, and we start the, these things that wow us and awe us and thrill us. There is a real danger in our culture there. There's a real fine line. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to experience these things in our lives, but when they begin to take preeminence in our lives, we have a real danger. In America, 
more than probably any people on the planet, we have the capability to provide a counterfeit sense of wow and awe by everything, all of the opportunity around us. And so Sunday morning can be just something we do between our Starbucks coffee and the Packer game. Do you know what I'm saying? Is that, you know, we can, it's, it's kind of like junk food. You know where it tastes good, and, but, but you eat too much of it, and pretty soon you're not hungry for anything good. You're not really hungry for the meat and potatoes. And, and you know, God will allow us, I'm not saying that God doesn't allow us joys and thrills and things that we enjoy around us. But when that's all we eat, pretty soon we, we can lose our hunger for the one who really provides the thrill, the one who only can provide the awe, and that is God himself. That's the danger of the affluence in our culture. And God warned Israel. He said, you know what? I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you things to enjoy and give you pleasure that will be blessings to you, but be very careful when I do that. Be very careful that when I, when I give you this abundance that you don't forget about me. That when you cease to give me preeminence in your life. You weren't made ultimately to be wowed by a cup of coffee or a sports team or a thousand other things. God put within you the ability to be wowed by him. He can satisfy. Only he can satisfy your soul. We see in Romans 121, it says, they neither glorified God or gave him thanks. He's talking about what happened to the culture when God gave them over. He says, they neither, they neither glorified me or gave me thanks. They turned their affections from God and so they lost touch with the awe and wonder and thrill that comes from knowing God and experiencing Him and experiencing His presence. When we do this, when we cease to glorify God and give God thanks, then the second thing, the second sin here becomes inevitable. Inevitable. It says they have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and this is what we do. We will dig our own cisterns. If God is not your cistern, you'll dig your own. You'll find some other place, some other thing to try and hold this, this water. And what water represents here, cisterns were were. They would build them out of bricks and then they would plaster them and inevitably it wouldn't take long before they would crack. The plaster would crack and the water would begin to leak out. And so it was, you know, cisterns were notorious for leaking. And so what he's saying here is instead of, God is providing you with a cistern. He wants to provide you something that will fully Fulfill the wow and the awe and the thrill that you desire in your life. He wants to fully, fully fulfill that need. But when we reject that, then you will find somewhere else to get your thrill. I promise you. It will be somewhere, something else that you look to 
to, to fill up. And what he says here is, by the way, he says they are, their own cisterns are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That cannot hold water. You know, one of the things, this is how idols work. And you probably, you probably know this. Idols are very short-lived. When, when you're doing something and it becomes an idol, it, it becomes enjoyable while you're doing it. But as soon as you're done, there's this, it's sometimes hard to describe, but it's, an, it's kind of an empty feeling inside. And the things that God offers, the pleasures that God offers, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you had an opportunity to, uh, to watch a movie or go help somebody move that needed some help. You watch the movie, it's exciting, it's thrilling, and you get done and you just have this feeling inside. You go and you serve somebody. You do what God's calling you to do, and, and there's this, you're done, and, and this feeling of pleasure just continues on, and it continues on. And the kind of pleasures that God calls us to are pleasures that will continue on in our lives. Again, Romans 1 is very insightful. Verse 24, notice what God does. It says, because they they didn't seek him for that desire in their soul. They didn't seek him to be thrilled. By the way, the reason they didn't thank him is because they weren't looking to him to be filled. And so God said, okay. It says, he gives them over to their own sinful desires. Basically, he's saying he gives them over to their idols other gods that they fashion out of the sinful desires of their hearts. We just see how important this is throughout the Bible. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, he said it very radically. He said, unless you hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. So what was Jesus saying here? Is he saying that you should hate your children? And your, of course not. There are many verses in the Bible. We are to love our spouse. We are to honor our parents. But what Jesus was saying, nothing else can come before me. If you make your children your God, you will turn them into an idol. If you make your spouse a God, you will turn them into an idol. Everything must take second place to me or it will become an idol. A broken cistern which cannot hold water. We see the story of Abraham, and, and Abraham, you know, he's waiting his whole life for the son, and finally gets his son, and then God does this very strange thing. He says, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son. And he brings it right to the point of his son on the altar and the knife up in the air, and he says, oh, okay, okay. Now I know, and here's a quote, now I know that you fear me. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know that you are willing to give up the most important thing in your life. That there is nothing, not even this son that you waited for so long, that not even this son is more important to me than you. Over the next few weeks, we're going to, we're looking at this highway of holiness and kind of picture it like this. There's a good picture in your mind. God, through the desert, you know, we live in a very barren world. 
Sin has its impact around us, in us, on us, in our families, on our lives, on our bodies. We experience it every day. That's why life is hard. It's a wilderness. And God had made this highway through the wilderness and there are blessings on this highway. The greatest one is that he walks this highway and you can experience his presence as you walk this highway. But along this highway, there are signs everywhere, exits everywhere, enticing us to get off the road. And at the end of every exit is an idol. And our culture is just full of them. Now, I like to look at it this way. I think there are some, you know those rest areas where we go off? You know, the, you know there are things that, the Bible says that God blesses us, he says he blesses us financially so that we might enjoy things that God gives us in our life. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there aren't things that God likes to see us enjoy. Sitting down and having a great meal. In fact, God calls his people to, to feast often. So there are these places of rest that God calls us to um, off, of, off of this highway of holiness. But when those things become the things in our lives that we're living off of, then we begin to build these cisterns that, that can't hold water. We begin to feel empty in our lives and we, we begin to just feel like something's missing deep within us. And so that is the direction that we are going to go. This morning as I conclude, I was, I was reminded of my brother Hilton and, you know, I don't think he's playing video games right now. I, I don't think he's on the computer. I don't think he's even thinking about whether the Vikings are going to win the Super Bowl this year. I think Hilton is experiencing, the Bible says, that at his right hand are eternal pleasures forevermore. God is not opposed to pleasure. God created pleasure. And, and I believe that, you know, it will take another world and another day to realize just how great, just how great the capacity to enjoy and to be thrilled and to be wowed and to be awed. What a capacity we have to experience that and it will be in Him. It, it will not be in some anything <clears throat> that you and I could create. Father, today, we thank You for being our God. We over and over again hear the invitation to put you first in our lives, to seek you as that ultimate source of joy, to trust you that as we pursue the things that you call us to along the highway of holiness, you call us to worship of you, you call us to fellowship with one another, you call us to serving one another in love. Father, not that there aren't times when we enjoy some of the thrills of the things around us. What a good meal. A vacation somewhere, we get away. Lord, the sights and sounds, the, the water, the hills, the mountains. Lord, just the joy of things that you've made. But Lord, you always call us to do it in, in connection with you. 
and to, Lord, always put you first. And, Lord, we, have, we confess to you that that's very difficult for us to find those lines. So many things that easily move into a place in our life where we give it more importance than it should have. And then, Lord, it starts to become empty. And we start to become empty. And so, Father, we pray that you'd teach us uh, over the course of these next few weeks, we pray that you would teach us how to enjoy these things you've given us in a way that is holy. Lord, today as I conclude, I just, uh, we're just reminded again, and we want to thank you again that your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, through his death, his burial through his resurrection, through his work on our behalf for our sins, Lord, has given us this opportunity to walk this highway and to experience the greatest joy in life, the, great of, the joy of knowing you. And so we just pray to that end. Father, today we pray that in everything in this day, and Lord, we will, we will just enjoy many things in this day that we would just give you praise for, for everything that you allow us to experience on this day. Thank you for being our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you, uh, I'm going to invite you to stand. And as you leave, I just share this blessing written many, many years ago. It's for God's people. It's a... Now may his face shine upon you, and may the Lord grant you his peace. Amen.